Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we watched Andrea Arnold's 2011 adaptation of Emily Bronte's classic Victorian novel, Wuthering Heights, starring James Housen and Kaya Scodelario as doomed lovers Heathcliff and Kathy. Arnold's stylistically experimental film differs sharply from other versions of the novel. This was a Patreon request from Asante from like many, 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 many months ago. It's just been like lingering. Um, So I'm happy to finally be getting this one done. This was really interesting for me because I saw this movie when it came out. I was really excited to see it because I adore Andrea Arnold's previous movie, Fish Tank. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I had read Wuthering Heights in college. So I was psyched for this at the time. I really enjoyed it. And I had not watched this since and I hadn't reread Wuthering Heights since college. So I reread the book and I watched the movie again. And I think it's a really interesting sort of experimental adaptation. You, however, (laughs) have not read Wuthering Heights or seen any of the other movies. And I think it was slightly perplexing to you. I truly did not know what was gonna happen in this movie. Like, I am aware of the concept of Wuthering Heights and the names of the lead characters and the fact that they pine each other across a moor. And I was aware that it was quite dark. But Having seen this film, obviously it's far more abstract than uh, the narrative that I think people are used to, but I was not expecting like the levels of grimness I was about to be exposed to. Obviously, Andrea Arnold is known for social realism, and that's definitely where this film is coming in. I thought it was really impressive in many ways, but it made me so miserable. I was like, oh God, I already knew that Britain was horrible, but like you've really, you've really like stabbed the point home. And of course, it's like you've got these two legendarily unpleasant protagonists um, who obviously are pretty amazing. Yeah, intensely grim. Truly the anti-period romance. So we discussed before we started recording, we will be freely spoiling Wuthering Heights, a book that came out in 1848. So if you are not familiar with the plot of Wuthering Heights, as Gavia was not before a week ago, proceed with caution. Wuthering Heights, the novel, is so much darker than this movie. I like cannot describe to you the protagonists are so much worse in the book i mean it's also it's known as a gothic novel and i would not categorize this as a gothic film at all no so i still think this movie is really interesting i like it and i think i completely admire and respect the decision to be like you know what i'm gonna fucking go for it because this book has been made into a film so many times that like why not just do something really weird I think I liked it a bit more the first time I saw it. And this time I was kind of like, this is really interesting, but I don't think it really succeeds. I think it's really works primarily as like a meditation on the novel. And if you aren't familiar with the book, like I just can't imagine what you would even think of this, which I will be asking you some questions about that, I guess. But um, I mean, it's practically like a Tarkovsky movie. The first half of the film doesn't have a plot. And only in the second half of the film can you sort of excavate what the first half was about. Yes. And, I mean, we'll be talking, or I will be talking a lot about Evelyn Bronte and the book, but I definitely remembered the novel in terms of, like, the plot and also, like, my impressions of it. I love Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is one of my favorite books ever. And I really liked Wuthering Heights when I read it, but it didn't have a strong effect on me. And rereading it was really interesting because I was like, oh, this book is really great and 
really stylistically unusual in a lot of ways for novels of this period. It's obviously really early Victorian, but it's around 300 pages, which is quite short for a Victorian novel. And it is mostly dialogue, which is very unusual for books of this time. Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte's other novels, which are all written in the first person, have lots of these long passages of like characters remembering things or ruminating on things sort of internally. And Wuthering Heights, because it's told from the perspective of characters who are not Heathcliff and ha- Kathy, like remembering these events sort of retrospectively, it is mostly dialogue because we're not inside their heads. And Heathcliff in particular is this like hyperverbal character, especially as an adult. And you don't get any of that in this movie at all. Yeah, when I was reading a few reviews of this after I'd watched the film, <laughs> I mean, obviously I was kind of aware that this was a very experimental adaptation, but it was kind of wild to discover that it's such a dialogue heavy book because the characters barely talk in this. A lot of the film is taken up with silent close-up shots of flora and fauna (laughs) and Heathcliff barely talks until the second half because like the movie is split into two you know the first half of the film they're young teenagers and then the second half of the film they're adults and in the first half the way Andrew Arnold has adapted it is that Heathcliff can't speak English at the beginning of the story so he's like almost non-verbal for like half an hour yeah and Kathy doesn't talk very much in the first half either, no. like a little bit more than Heathcliff, but not much at all. And so, like, this movie is, on a technical level, just, like, an unbelievable accomplishment. We'll talk a little bit more about the specifics later, but it looks amazing, it sounds amazing. But um, I think it's more sort of interesting than, like, a complete work of art. And again, it's most interesting in terms of like, what is she kind of doing with the book? And how is this different from other adaptations of Wuthering Heights, which tend to follow similar patterns, which um, I will describe shortly. But before we get into that, why don't we talk a bit about Emily Bronte and the background of the Bronte sisters? Um, I don't want to do too much biographical stuff, because I think part of what trips people up in talking about this novel and Emily Bronte in general is the biographical stuff because there just is very, very little information about her. Like, obviously there's information about the family in general, um, but very little of like her sort of diary writing or like letters. I mean, she didn't have very many friends outside her family, so I don't think there were very many letters. Like that's just stuff just has not survived. And so over the past 150 years, as this book has become a like cult object, this desire to understand who she was and then like romanticize her because she died quite young of tuberculosis at the age of 30, and this is her only novel, like people just are desperate to have some explanation for who she was, and it's not possible. Like we just don't, we don't know, and that's fine. But um, she was born in 1818. As I said, she died of TB when she was 30. From a literary perspective, kind of the formative stuff to look at in terms of her is that she and both her sisters spent a lot of their time when they were young writing these um, like fantasy stories with each other that took place in these imagined worlds called um, Angria. And then she and Anne sort of leveled up to a second fantasy world called Gondol. And they had these like elaborate like world building situations basically and they wrote all these stories that took place in 
these worlds. I have a biography of the Brontes written by Juliet Barker. I think it's the definitive one, although it's I have not read it because it is a thousand pages long. But I was flipping through it, and um, she argues that Wuthering Heights was really influenced by Gondol specifically and by Walter Scott. They were obsessed with Walter Scott, which makes sense because he was like the Dickens of the early 19th century. Like his books were just hugely popular. And that if you look at how she's describing like the Moors and these sort of over-the-top characters, it really tracks with a lot of Scott's writing about nature um, and his sort of romantic figures. And then the Gondol stuff is kind of similar. And then she was also a very accomplished poet. They all wrote poetry, but I think she's considered the most talented of the three of them, um, although I have not really read the poetry. But um, she and Charlotte went to Belgium when they were teenagers to attend like a girls' academy that was run by this guy called Constantine Heger, who Charlotte became like completely infatuated with um her book Villette the love interest in that is based on this guy if I remember correctly and there's one quote from him that I just like pulled from Wikipedia but I thought it was really good about Emily and he wrote she should have been a man a great navigator her powerful reason would have deduced new spheres of discovery from the knowledge of the old and her strong imperious will would never have been daunted by opposition or difficulty never have given way but with life she had a head for logic and a capability of argument unusual in a man and rarer indeed in a woman impairing this gift was her stubborn tenacity of will which rendered her obtuse to all reasoning where her own wishes or her own sense of right was concerned you see my report cards were like gavia needs to participate more in class (laughs) so (laughs) well and i think that this quote which is just like amazing obviously really ties into how people reacted to weathering heights which i mean i'm assuming with just terror and intimidation (laughs) right so charlotte so after emily bronte dies There's just not very much biographical information about her, as I said. And Charlotte really becomes like the mediator of her biography and legacy for like everybody up until now, but especially for the first few decades after she died, because there just wasn't any information. And so the books are initially published as being written by Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell, right? Although I think people pretty quickly figured out that Kerr Bell, which was Charlotte's pseudonym, was a pseudonym. And Wuthering Heights was published the year before um, Emily died, along with Agnes Gray, which was written by Anne. And um, Charlotte, like, retroactively sort of was like, well, no one paid attention to it at the time. And it was just this weird thing that she wrote, and, like, whatever. And if you look at the actual responses from critics, there's a people were negative about it, but also a lot of people were positive, but in this way where they're kind of like, we just don't really know like what to do with this so i have a few here i'm let's see uh so there's a great book called the bronte myth by lucasta miller if anyone's interested in sort of like how these books and figures were received over the past 150 years i really recommend it but she pulls a bunch of the reviews and says that the book was frequently called strange and original which is like great and that one reviewer called, said that the reader is shocked, disgusted, almost sickened by details of cruelty, inhumanity, and the most diabolical hate and vengeance, but that this reviewer nevertheless went on to recommend it strongly, pronouncing it very puzzling, dot dot dot, remarkable, which seems to kind of sum up the whole thing. Like, everyone was just like, I'm horrified by this, but like, it's good, question mark, right? Um, and that one early review of the book was like, 
the person who wrote Jane Eyre has to have written this too. Like, there's no way it was, there was another sibling who wrote this novel. It is the unformed writing of a giant's hand, the large utterance of a baby god, which is just, again, like, what? (laughs) There's some great phraseology going on here. (laughs) I know. And that there was an article in the American Review in 48, so a year after it was first published, that attested to its popularity among thousands of young ladies in the country. So immediately the young women were like, I love it. Like, give me more, which makes sense. I mean, young ladies love fucked up relationships. Yes. But that the sort of darkness was uncomfortable for people right away, even if it wasn't like a... It gets characterized as a failure, I think, which clearly wasn't the case, but it was not the, like, huge success that Jane Eyre was. Jane Eyre was big immediately. And Charlotte was very uncomfortable with it, as evidenced by her introduction when they republished the books I actually own a very early copy of Wuthering Heights, which I am helpfully showing to Gav and that the readers cannot see because this is an audio medium. But um, Leatherbound tomes. Yes. So by this, it still says like Ellison Acton Bell, but she's referred like it's she has a preface that's by Charlotte Bronte and she's talking about her sisters by their real names in the intro. And she says, in Emily's nature, the extremes of vigor and simplicity seem to meet. Under an unsophisticated culture, in artificial tastes, and an unpretending outside, lay a secret power and fire that might have informed the brain and kindled the veins of a hero, but she had no worldly wisdom. Her powers were unadapted to the practical business of life. She would fail to defend her most manifest rights to consult her most legitimate advantage. And I think this myth of her being like, just this kind of like natural talent who like didn't know what she was doing. Like Charlotte really clung to that and really perpetuated that idea. And if you actually read the book, it's like a masterful, very carefully constructed piece of fiction that is not just someone being like, I'm just, I'm just writing something. And like, even in this, this interview with Andrea Arnold that I read in film comment, she's kind of playing into this, these myths about Emily Bronte and being like, well, I think all these characters are part of her subconscious. And I think she just wrote it in like a, you know, freeform state. And I was like, if you need to believe this, that's fine. But like the kind of discomfort with female talent and specifically with female talent that's being deployed in the service of something that is so unbelievably dark and taboo, basically. Like this book is really fucked up. I mean, that is kind of what I was thinking all the way through your explanation there and I'm quite surprised that Andrea Arnold was sort of like endorsing that because from what I have now learned about this book is that it's quite like structurally complex (laughs) um, and you know psychologically complex as well and there is always this idea of women writers kind of just their emotions are feeling everything and it's sort of coming forward in this naturalistic talent kind of in the same way that people talk about child actors Mm -hmm. I mean our pal Taylor Swift has debunked this many a time. (laughs) Yeah. So to give a very brief overview of, of how the novel is structured, because the movie is very different and most of the adaptations are not set up like this because I don't really like, you couldn't do this all in one movie. It would have to be a mini series. There's this like traveler, his name is Lockwood, I think who like shows up in this part of England and winds up staying I think in the Linton's house and he like meets Heathcliff as like a middle-aged man with like the next generation of all of these people's kids living there. And it's clearly just like incredibly nightmarish and dysfunctional in this place. And this 
guy who is technically the narrator of the book, although you only get him at the very beginning and the end, is clearly kind of just a buffoon, like he doesn't really know what's going on. And then he winds up talking to Ellen Dean, who is the servant who has been with Kathy for her whole life and then stayed with the family after Kathy dies. And she is the narrator of most of the book. So she has this like very close perspective on these people because she's been around the whole time, but also because she's a servant is sort of like, what the fuck? Like, this is just like, ah, my, like these, this is too much. And initially is really sympathetic to Heathcliff because they're, they, he has this kind of liminal status in the household. And obviously when he first shows up, having been like brought in off the street is not in a great state. And he's very charismatic, so there is something appealing about him, and they're about the same age. And then as he gets older, he becomes more and more monstrous, and she kind of is frightened of him. And she also finds Kathy kind of obnoxious. So she's recounting all this stuff, but it's you never really get them directly, so it's all being mediated through someone else, so you don't know quite how truthful it is. And... Kathy dies like halfway through the book. And then a lot of the novel is dedicated to the next generation of kids, which is the less dark part. Like they kind of work it out. Whereas Kathy and Heathcliff are clearly just like fucked up inevitably. Like they can't make it happen. And movies almost always just focus on the Kathy and Heathcliff stuff because all the next generation thing and like the frame story is just too complicated to get into, which I think is fine. Like it's, it's just too much, but it does take something away from what the book is doing because the book is really kind of ambivalent. I mean, it almost sounds as if this might be better as a book than a film. <laughs> you, you think? Yes. So what winds up happening in the sort of history of adaptations of this novel is that, so it kind of goes away for a few decades after it was published because again, just kind of too weird. And then has a bit of a resurgence in the early 20th century. And Emily gets really romanticized as this kind of like mystic spiritual figure. Obviously spiritualism is huge at this time, but when it really goes just like nuclear is the 1939 film adaptation by William Wilder, which stars um, Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon, which is, hilarious movie in my opinion i've only seen it once but um it's just a romantic like the servant boy and the rich girl i mean even the really dark films that were coming out in 1939 were not on this level in terms of mainstream romances so (laughs) i can only imagine what our pal mr weiler was doing with that it's so funny Lawrence Olivier has, like, one lock of dark hair that, like, falls over his forehead. And he just, like, looks really sexy and is, like, really sad when she's not paying attention to him. And in this book by Lucasta Miller, she notes that by 1949, 220 million people had seen the movie. So it was a I mean, the magic of an adaptation with two really hot people with great hair can't be underestimated. Yep. She compares the Kathy in this movie to a Scarlett O'Hara type character, which I think is a very apt comparison. Yeah, I'm looking up pictures here and she's got those sort of perfect ironed ringlets and beautiful dresses and there's a lot of swooning going on in these images. And I'm like, that does not reflect the experience I just had, which was yeah. 90% mud. Yes. So I think she says in that book that there have been something like 29 film adaptations of this book. Like there have been a lot, but that one is definitely the most influential because most of the adaptations that have followed are on that template, right? In terms of this being like this epic romance 
Yeah, Tom Hardy did one with uh, Charlotte Riley, his wife. Y- yes. I think that was how they met, although don't quote me on that. Yeah, um, probably. And so this book is very commonly taught in schools, which makes sense because for a book from this period, it's really accessible. But a lot of teenage girls will read it and just be like, oh my god, it's so romantic. When like, it is not. It is fucked up. And one of the things I appreciate a lot about this film is that even if it's not as dark as the book, it definitely is more sympathetic to the characters and like presents them in a more kind of human light. Whereas in the novel, they're really pretty horrible. It is not doing the kind of like swooning, you know? Yeah. And I mean, because obviously the brand of it is kind of perceived in the same world as all of these other classic British period romances, you know, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre. Obviously, a lot of these books are quite different, but the screen adaptations are often very similar and people kind of know what to expect. And you're immediately struck by how dark and edgy and intentionally realistic the film is in terms of just the way it's shot and all that, like very obviously. But the thing that's like far more shocking to me is just like how unpleasant both of the main characters are especially the girl. Like, like I mean, they're both horrible. Heathcliff is slightly more prominent as a character. Like, he's more of the point of view character in this film. But, but like, Kathleen, you're just like, wow, this person's a monster. And there's lots of sort of, like, sadomasochistic undertones in their relationship. And I was like, well, this is fascinating. So I, because you haven't read the book, I want you to tell me what about what happened in the movie made you go, wow, these people are monsters. Okay. So like a lot of kind of social realist dramas, the impression I got from this is that like both of these characters are like quite nasty, but a lot of their unpleasantness is because they have been raised in this crucible of unpleasantness and cruelty and poverty. And obviously Heathcliff is experiencing virulent racism in his everyday life constantly throughout his childhood because he's kind of like this indentured servant to a white family like he's a black child who is dehumanized by the family that's adopted him and he's kind of meant to be a sort of secondary step sibling but once his stepfather dies then he's immediately shunted into the sort of servant zone like more of an indentured servant or a slave really and he's beaten all the time and So he is just like, the only way he knows how to react to anyone is with anger. Because like, he's just like repressed and depressed and miserable. And the only person he can kind of have a relationship as an equal with is Kathy. But also Kathy is like a teenage girl and the people she's been raised with are horrible. And their relationship is like very animalistic and sensual. And then once they're adults, like you kind of don't, know what has happened in the intervening years like it's kind of unclear how much time passes between the first and second halves because it seems like they should be quite a lot older but the way they've like they do the narrative is that like Kathy gets engaged when the actress is still like young looking and then when they swap the actors over it's clear that only like a couple of years can have passed because you see this like other child in the family is still like a young child so it's presumably been like four years or something but it seems like it should have been like a decade. But um, in that intervening time, Heathcliff has like 
become much more socially competent, like obviously, and because he's an adult and he's gone off to find his fortune and he has become quite wealthy and successful, but you have no idea where the money has come from. And obviously he has continued to have quite an unhappy life because he's just like got this one soulmate he wants to be with. And Kathy has just become like much more cruel in those, those intervening years because when they meet up together again, she has been married to this rich guy for a few years and they're both just trying to claw at each other. You know, they're trying to cause each other pain because they find that exciting and they understand each other on the same level. But like, it's a really kind of toxic relationship. Yes. Toxic. I mean, that's the vibe I got. <laughs> well, it was just interesting because I think my view of it, because I had just reread the book or reread it, you know, a couple months ago, and I had that in my head, like they felt quite sympathetic and human to me because I had the book versions in my head. I mean, I found them sympathetic, but I also found them jarringly mean and selfish for like the type of movie genre this usually is. Like if this was a film that like I'd seen without any kind of independent knowledge of the fact that it's like a literary romantic classic, I might have had like a slightly different response, yeah. but just because like there's certain genre expectations you have. Well, I opened the Wikipedia page for this just to get, you know, the actors' names, etc. And they have a little, like, thumbnail picture of the, the poster from the UK. And the tagline, very large text on the poster, is Love is a Force of Nature. Which, like, what? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I do not think so. I mean, it's like, they're technically true, because the way love is depicted in this film is through just gouts of muddy water like running yeah. through the earth and like animals being violently killed and tortured repeatedly and that sort of thing so you know technically true yeah i mean one of the things i think is interesting about this movie is that you do have this like shift between the, the child and the adult actors and i think part of the like slight confusion with the passage of time is that she clearly is using the child actors through like okay and now they're like mid-teenagers, but they're yeah. still children. Because like they basically look between like 12 and 14, but by the end of their narrative, she's got engaged. And then like it's clearly only a few years later once they're yeah. like quote-unquote adults. And I mean, the like child actors are absolutely ups. incredible. It was really dispiriting to look at their IMDb's after watching this movie and find out that they basically have not had film careers. I don't know if they've had stage careers, but like... Shannon Beer and Solomon Glaive, amazing performances. See, I take the opposite view, which is that child actors should do one film and then do no acting ever again. And I mean, no, for their, their own peace lives. of mind, like, Godspeed on the fact that they have made an amazing creative work and, like, haven't been, like, fucked up by the media industry or whatever. But at the same time, if one is an amazing talent that has been scouted by one of Britain's greatest filmmakers, it is kind of depressing if they did indeed want to go and do, you know like Coronation Street or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that this stuff with the kids is incredible and that the movie seriously like lags when the adults show up, which Arnold herself was agreeing with in interviews at the time. There's a film comment interview that I mentioned that I have some quotes from. And she says, I felt pushed around by the story. There were certain things in that part of the book that had to be in the film. It's the more linear conventional storytelling that I found restrictive and that I couldn't find my way through easily. I feel that it shows in the film. Sometimes boundaries can be good, but I didn't find that. Which is like a shockingly 
candid admission of like yeah the fact that she yeah, you know? said that is like wow <laughs> but i think the kids are well as you said i think those actors are incredible she casts a lot of people just by like finding them on the street the lead girl in fish tank who hasn't done a ton of acting since that she like found her on a train platform and i would imagine these kids were found through casting because they're children but i'm sure that they had we're not, you know, professional actors before doing this. And I think she has a real talent for working with people in that way. And I just think that they are incredible. And Solomon Glaive, who plays young Heathcliff, I just think it is an astonishing child performance because the girl who plays Kathy is also really wonderful, but she's got a little more, like, outward stuff to do because she's playing, like, the charismatic one, right? And, like, he's really entranced by her. And, like, seduced in a non-sexual, like, childlike way, right? And um, he has to be really sort of reticent because he's in this new environment. He doesn't really know what's going on. And also, like, the nature of his character in this film, anyway, is to kind of just be like, I'm just going to keep to myself and, like, kind of not let that much out. But you still have to be able to tell when he's really yearning for something or feel slighted or, like, he does lose control and lose his temper a couple of times. And the look in his eyes when he is feeling something like that, like, it's so clear. And you can just completely tell. And that's so hard for an adult actor to do. And the fact that this kid could do it that well, I just thought was amazing. And I think he is definitely better than James Housen, who plays Heathcliff as an adult, who I think is, like, fine, but I don't think is as, like, naturally magnetic on the screen as the, this kid is. Um, so I think when the movie makes that shift to the adult part, but what she says about sort of being hemmed in by the plot feels true. Like, the kind of plotlessness of that first part really works for me, I think, because it does have this feeling of, like, childhood where there's no restriction. You're kind of just, like, whatever. I mean, it literally did just strongly remind me of Tarkovsky, because you've just yeah. got this film that's about people lying down in the wet grass for hours and we should say so she worked i think all her films she's worked with the cinematographer robbie ryan who i think is a just genius yeah he's incredible and she shoots an academy ratio so it's kind of a square and you'll often have not like literally a point of view shot, but it really feels like you're in the point of view of one character for most of the movie. So oftentimes you'll kind of be behind someone or maybe over the shoulder. And um, it it looks and feels very similar to Fish Tank, although Fish Tank is more narratively conventional. And there's a lot of like narrative commonality between the two of them, or maybe not narrative, but like thematic and character commonality in the sense that Fish Tank is also a movie about a young person who's not nonverbal, like Mia, who's the main character in that, does talk, but she really can't articulate what she's feeling. And there is this, again, like, just nonverbal quality to her. And I feel like there's a lot going on that's very similar that is not actually very much like Wuthering Heights, but that is clearly something that she kind of understands as an artist, that she's kind of bringing into this and that's why this character is not really talking very much and it does express something about this character in the sense that he's kind of an outsider and is disadvantaged but it's not what the book is like (laughs) which again is fine and we obviously we have not talked yet about i mean you talked about the racism but it was really notable that she cast 
two black actors to play Heathcliff because certainly in a mainstream adaptation that had not happened before, it's possible there was some like tiny version that I don't know of where this had been done. But um, in the book, Heathcliff is described as dark skinned. He is a little Lascar. And I remember reading it in college and being like, oh, this is like not ambiguous. <laughs> like it's very clear what she means. And it's not that she like talks about it extensively in the novel, but it's not like it's mentioned enough that it's pretty obvious that he's not white. And um, the adaptations have just not engaged with that in any way. Yeah, it definitely seems like one of those situations where people like just ignore what they don't want to see or they're so influenced by what they've seen on screen that they just like haven't considered that this character is canonically not a white character. Yeah, I was interested to see what you've kind of looked up into the casting background for this and you kind of have this note here that they initially kind of put out a call to find Romani actors and then sort of expanded it into mixed race or South Asian actors and then eventually went with like a black actor. So like they'd kind of gone for like a variety of options and like couldn't find the right person. But yeah, like the way they tell this story is that like we have no idea what Heathcliff's background is, but he is black. It seems pretty likely that Kathleen's never met a black person before but there's enough like social awareness with this within this community that like every other person in the film is like very racist towards him. Like some of the women aren't, especially when he's an adult, because like he's sort of romanticized and like sexualized by uh, some of the women as well. I mean, obviously he has like a romantic subplot with one of the other women, but like yeah, that's like kind of a central part of the movie, and like also the person they cast as Kathy's horrible older brother looks really modern so you immediately have this sort of working class Andrea Arnold council estate vibe for Kathy's older brother whereas she actually does look pretty historical he's literally a skinhead yeah that was one of the things where I was like this is maybe a bit much I love you Andrea but like perhaps pushing the thumb down a little hard on the scale here I was like wow you've it's really quite an unusual haircut for like this this period (laughs) (laughs) and also like the shaving technology you currently have I know it made me laugh I mean I think the way race is handled in this movie is quite interesting especially in the context of the book where as I said like it is not ambiguous but it's not like Bronte is like talking about this constantly throughout the text and it's also an interesting one to consider in terms of the endless and at this point, I think totally inane conversations about representation in media, right? Because Heathcliff is a monster. Like, this is not a good person. But it is very notable that one of the major canonical works of Victorian literature has this central character who is clearly textually not a white person. And um, the sort of mystery of his origin is definitely in the book and not played up in like a major sort of exoticist way it's just like we don't really know who this guy is and like nobody really knows where he came from and there's this sort of demonic quality to that right like he just came up from out of nowhere and like he's bad and i mean they give him this name like i mean i don't know how he's named in the book but like in the movie he's literally christened by the characters because like he doesn't have a name at first and i'm like you've named him heathcliff which is this sort of epic architectural name about the wildness of the outdoors and sort of nature and stuff and I was like that's a fascinating name 
Apparently there is a Walter Scott character with a very similar name, which Julia Barker was speculating may have been the inspiration, which I kind of loved. Um, But yeah, as you say, right, like it is kind of like of the Moors, but like Kathy is as bad or if not worse than he is, right? And she's this kind of like English rose, even if she's sort of a not traditionally feminine in a lot of ways. And I think the casting... I'm just very grateful that she did that because I think it is really helpful that that happened. And like, it's right. Like the book should be (laughs) cast that way. But it was interesting watching it this time because the like explicitness of the racism in the screenplay, which I don't think is like bad because that like that would happen. Right. I think it does flatten the book a little bit because you have this sense of this character in the novel who is being really badly treated, but also has this kind of chip on his shoulder in a way that isn't completely explained. And the genius of the book is that you kind of are wobbling back and forth for all the first half between being really sympathetic to this person because, like, his life does suck and he really loves this woman and she's treating him like shit. And then being like, you are horrible. (laughs) You are doing bad things. And then in the second half, he's just awful. And I think... That sense of, like, feeling for a character, but then realizing, like, oh, no, this guy is not good. I just think that's really interesting. And I think there's a, like, the book does come down ultimately in a, like, morally clear place. But I think a lot of the novel is kind of morally ambiguous in a way that is really provocative. And I think the way that Arnold sort of writes in the racism is less ambiguous, right? Because of course we're all like, yeah, these people fucking suck because they're being racist assholes to this kid, right? It's not even that I think that she's wrong to be doing it that way. I just kind of like, it's adding something that therefore something kind of gets lost a little bit and you just have to kind of balance how all of that comes out ultimately, I think. Which is less about the casting and more about the screenplay. Yeah, I mean, there is a different... Like, there's a different story and class and race dynamic at play in a story about a man who is racially ambiguous, clearly not white, and has, like, a very complicated relationship with class, and then a story where that same character is explicitly black and then is within the framework of anti-black racism in, like, 18th century England. Yes, I think that's totally right. And I think the novel is more... Like, obviously the film, because you're seeing these people who obviously like own a house and like have servants. So it's not like they're poor, but like they're definitely like, I mean, it's like the most depressing house of all time. It's really yeah. like the whole movie. I was like, it kind of seems like you should all just have pneumonia all the time. Because, <laughs> Cause like, while it is absolutely gorgeously shot and like, there's so, so many kind of beautiful colors of the landscape in Yorkshire in this film, but this house is like this, rock house with no sense of comfort whatsoever indoors if anything i was like i don't know if this is social realism i think this is just like an orgy of misery where you've tried to make sure that the (laughs) interior of this house like reflects the emotional state of the people living in it because it's like human beings don't want to live like this like you would (laughs) like you would i mean there would be some sort of like blankets like (laughs) that is weathering heights so yeah i mean it's it's the correct vibe for the narrative but like yeah, this extremely depressing house in this, like, depressing, not a town, like, it's a house that's, like, near some other houses. And then, like, the quote-unquote big house, you know, is nearby where the aristocrats live, and that's kind of more what you would expect 
from like a sort of Regency adjacent story. Yeah. And obviously there is implicit class commentary there, right? And like Kathy goes and marries the son of that family because who wouldn't want to go live in that house instead of staying in this fucking place? But the novel, just because there's so much more space to talk about it and because there is actual conversations being had as opposed to just like shots of leafs, the class stuff is way more thoroughly examined. And I think this movie is not actually is interested in that component, which I think it it's just trying to do something totally different. But it's a little lacking in context because it's so much just about the sensory experience of like being in this place, which is a lot of what the book is doing too. Like there's a reason that people read those novels and then are so obsessed with the idea of like Yorkshire and the Moors, right? But I mean, the novel is just, even though it's short, it's so sort of thematically dense that it's impossible to get all of these things in two hours like it's just not gonna work so i do think that again just deciding like well i'm just gonna do my own thing basically and it'll be called Wuthering heights <laughs> it's gonna be like an hour-long film that's about two 13 year olds licking blood out of each other's wounds and killing rabbits <laughs> and then the second half will be like a really edgy kind of classic historical romance with a tragic ending because like the second half kind of sees Heathcliff come back to like his childhood home and he essentially wants to win back Kathy, who is by this point married and we soon learn she's uh, pregnant with her husband's child. And like obviously the relationship between her and her husband is like non-existent. You really have no idea what their dynamic is like, but it just seems like she just doesn't give a shit about him. And he's the sort of classic 18th century English husband who just sees her as property. Like he's not portrayed as this like really awful person or anything but he's just present and not very interesting at all and then Heathcliff shows up and they immediately have this like incredibly electric connection um we've not actually mentioned her yet but like Caius Godlario plays the older Kathy um amusingly she is credited first like on all the publicity because she is the only name actor in these four actors she is actually like the least prominent of the four actors I would say because obviously Heathcliff is like more <laughs> more to the foreground and like the kids are the more important part of the film but Kaya's got Lario. I love her. She is one of the original Skins cast, um, which as regular listeners will know, are all very dear to my heart. And she's had a wonderful and very varied career, including some big and occasionally quite good blockbusters. Um, she was in a very good horror movie last year called Crawl. But um, yeah, like Kaya's great in this and um, very respectable accent. I don't recall if she's actually from Yorkshire or not, but I'm pretty sure she's not. She and uh, Heathcliff, they have very strong vibes. They're immediately really nasty to each other. So I was like, I'm fascinated that this is like a a classic uh, romance that teenage girls love because like the vibes are truly, you know, very painful. And then uh, they know that's not going to happen. So Heathcliff goes off and like very easily seduces Kathy's sister-in-law who just like properly fancies him because he's so like mysterious and hot and fresh. And of course, he's like absolutely horrible to her in that very short-lived relationship. And then after they've had this big blow up, Kathy dies. She dies of like a fever and a broken heart or whatever. And like the end of this movie is just like tragedy and pain and horror. And it's like the end. (laughs) The sister-in-law marries him in the book and then is stuck with him, which not a fun time. 
I mean, the, the the idea that they, like, in future are together forever and have children is, like, what the fuck? Because, like, that poor girl, she is just, like, a normal, like, rich-ish girl in this movie. And, like, she feel, like, quite bad for her. Because <laughs> she's just, like, naively going after this guy. I believe she, like, runs away to London and then just, like, lives alone. Because why would you? I mean, Because, like, literally no. within, like, the first 48 hours of their relationship, he's already, like, beating her. Bad. Bad man. Yeah, I mean, it is quite interesting that this and the Carrie Fukunaga Jane Eyre came out in the same year. I love that adaptation of Jane Eyre. I think it's incredible. And it is way more conventional than this movie, but also really interesting and daring in certain ways. But clearly a revival of the sort of classic adaptations was going on at that time. Not that they're, we're ever too far away from them. But I think that one is better. But this is definitely a bigger swing. I mean, this is definitely the most kind of ambitious that isn't a sort of gimmicky reboot that I've seen like of this type. Because obviously there's yes. a million very gimmicky versions of Pride and Prejudice, but they're so sort of separated from the original text that it doesn't really count. Whereas this is, you know, a direct historical adaptation, but she's like, I'm going to do this my way. Well, the book is really suited to that because as you were saying, it feels really shocking that it, is kind of in this genre, but then it's like, wait, this is what Wuthering Heights is? And I think because she's Charlotte Bronte's sister and everybody knows Jane Eyre, you feel like it should be like that. And they were both very influenced by Byron. Um, This book specifically was very influenced by Byron, both biographically, like there's a kind of incestuous thing going on and everybody knew Byron's business by this time, including his deal with his sister, but also like his writing and the kind of Byronic hero thing. And obviously Rochester also kind of falls into that model. But like, they really aren't similar in any way. (laughs) Because Jane Eyre is a gothic romance in a sort of classical way. And this book is just a fucking like, what? Again, rereading it, like I read so many books from this period, I was kind of just shocked by how... Like, it feels very modern in certain ways because she is so uninterested in catering to the sensibilities of the time. These people behave completely monstrously and she's just like, well. I mean, it's definitely interesting kind of in the context of sort of almost outsider art where it's like if someone is able to develop their work in private over a really long period of time without, like, obviously she's constantly influenced by the way society is. But like, if she can just be like, well, I'll just stay at home and write my incredibly fucked up little book. Like, it's not like she's part of, like, a literary circle of people to rein her in. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And, like, the fact that it is really readable, like, as I said, it's not very long. It's mostly dialogue. Like, there's some dialect in it that's kind of tough, but it's not a huge part of the book. It's not hard to read. Again, they teach teenagers all the time. And yet, when you actually think about the content, it's like, oh my god, like, this is really, like, bleak. So yeah, I would recommend people read Wuthering Heights. Great book. I will also say, so I, I saw this with a Q&A from Andrew Arnold at the Brooklyn Academy of Music uh, 10 years ago, and she is the most charming woman. Like, just a delight, delightful person. And the one thing I really distinctly remember her saying about that was talking about the Mumford and Sons song. I was literally about to say, because I was like, the fact that this movie, it's obviously it's not the kind of movie that has music. And then it ends with like the credits music as the Mumford and Sons song. And it's like starts before the credits start. So it's like literally part of the movie. And I was like, this is not aged well. <laughs> I mean, I personally, 
I will admit to the listeners of this podcast, really unironically love that Mumford and Sons song. I mean, maybe because you have that association from 10 years ago, but I was like, Mumford and Sons here? I mean, okay. I, I think they're, they're, all their good work has been on films. He he worked on the Lewin Davis music. I mean, and that's I was really happy to hear what Mumford and Sons and like the fucking Hunger Games, but also it's like, it's very much of a time and I'm like, the the Mumford squad are not what I want to be experiencing here. But anyway, go go on with what you were going to say. They wrote it for the movie and she was like, you know, this movie's really depressing and I just wanted to give the audience a little present at the end. So I put that song in and I just figured, you know, that's what I did. And I was just like, good for you. <laughs> that was her whole rationale. That was the whole thing. And I just thought, great, you should do what you want. And she has this very thick accent. It was absolutely hilarious. The end of Fish Tank, she also describes, is like just a little present, you know? So I, I'm fond of the end for that reason, because I just think of her being like, well, why not? Indeed. Otherwise, you're just sitting there like contemplating the death of the human spirit while watching the credits being like, Jesus Christ, I need to leave Britain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Well, we didn't talk about her very much. I'm sure we will do Fish Tank at some point, and then we can get deep into Andrew Arnold. Um, she also has a documentary called Cow out. I heard that because I was like, oh, it's interesting. Like this year, you could have a you could have like a triple bill of cow, pig, and lamb. Three films of very different genres. Channing Tatum's directorial debut, Dog, also comes out in two months. Oh so. right, well you could have a four very different films. Yeah, I don't think I want to watch the dog film. No, I will certainly not be watching it either. I but mean, condescendingly, I'm like, good job, sweetie, but also, fuck no. <laughs> uh, yeah, the military propaganda film Dog, I will not be watching. But in terms of this trend of just, like, one-word animal names, yeah. we've really got a, got a <laughs> thing going on here. But yeah, thank you to Asante for requesting this, getting me to reread Wuthering Heights for the first time in over ten years. So next week, we are doing another listener request, um, this one from Nicole, and it is a Korean TV drama named The School Nurse Files. Neither of us have heard of this before. It's on Netflix, and it is a kind of supernatural drama. The main character is a school nurse with the power to see human desires, feelings, and spirits that exist in the form of jellies. So they can have like monstrous forms. There's like a guy who has a special energy field around him that protects him from jellies. And we are going to find out how this goes. I'm intrigued. This sounds like the sort of thing I would watch. So You've <laughs> sold excited. me in one sentence on um, whatever the hell that is. So I am excited to discover what's going on there. We also recently posted a Patreon-only episode about Princess Mononoke. So if you would like to listen to that or request an episode yourself, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me at hello underscore Taylor on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.